Okay, welcome to Parashat Pinchas. Recording in progress. It's also the 17th of Tammuz. We'll review a few things that happened historically on this day, tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people. Uh, the first was that Bnei Israel um, worshipped the golden calf, and the first set of luchot were broken on this day. A second is that in, during the first temple, the korban tamid, the korban that was brought daily, uh, stopped. It, they ceased from uh, continuing to bring it. The third is that the Romans during the second temple breached Jerusalem, which led to the fast that we have on Tisha B'Av, which was the destruction. Uh, the fourth is Apostomos, who was a Roman leader. He burnt a Sefer Torah. The fifth is that the same Apostomos put an idol in the Beit HaMikdash. It's been a day of mourning for the Jewish people. Um, but I think we want to really recognize there are two ideas or reasons that we fast. And so some of them are set in the Torah, like a Yom Kippur, for instance, is already designated um, and it's intended for us to repent, to improve our conduct. And there are other fasts that are intended to achieve divine mercy, to bring Hashem to really have Rahamim on our nation. This fast today, I believe, meets both criteria because if you think about it, um, the purpose or the reason very often for the tragedies that befall our nation, very often they are a wake-up call and they are a call for us to repent and improve our conduct. So today specifically, when we're um, commemorating past tragedies, at the same time we're looking to see what can we do to um, change and ourselves personally and to change our state of affairs. We are living in a broken world, it's no secret. Um, there is a tremendous amount of assimilation, there is a tremendous uh, Baruch Hashem, there has been a great, great Yeshuv, a great return to Eretz Yisrael, but the numbers aren't as uh, big and great as they could be. And so we wanna come away merging the ancient memories and the old uh, history that we've shared together, and we want to bring a modern cry to it. We want to add a voice to it. We don't want to just let the day pass without coming or growing or elevating. And so our learning today, um, with your permission, is going to be Leilui Nishmat, in the memory of and to uplift the Nishama of my Aunt Gloria, Batrachel. Uh, her funeral was yesterday, that was why we didn't have class. Um, also, I'd like to uh, dedicate our learning for the Refuah Shelema of Yisrael Noach Ben Le'ah. Um, he should have beautiful um, news, great reports, and um, Hashem should guide and enlighten his path to recovery to a full and strong recovery. And so as we're going through the 17th of Tammuz, we can't even take one more step without seeing what the Torah has to say this week to us. And I believe it offers a very beautiful truth and it offers a, um, a guiding light that I hadn't seen until we started to merge the days. So I'll first give you a recap it's pretty action-packed. It starts out, it's, you feel like you sort of came in on episode two of a series because it says, Vaydaber Hashem el Moshe lemor. Parashat Pinchas is in chapter 25, verse 10, it starts, that Hashem speaks to Moshe and he says, Pinchas ben Elazar, this person, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, ben Aharon HaKohen, the Son of Aaron HaKohen, Heshiv et Chamati me'al b'nei Yisrael. He has returned or rewound. He has brought back or recoiled 
my chama, my anger, my fury from Bnei Yisrael, bekano et kinati betocham, when he either felt my kina uh, could be jealousies or my uh, vengeance, velokiliti et Bnei Yisrael bekinati, and I didn't kiliti to consume, to totally obliterate, to finish, to wipe out. Bnei Israel in my state of kinah, in my state of, um, I'm using the word jealousies very, very loosely, because if we didn't know what happened last week, we're being told here that Bnei Israel did a horrible thing and Pinchas came and saved the day. So in order for us to know what's taking place, of course, we have to go back to the end of last week's parasha and re-familiarize ourselves. The beginning of the Perek, Perek 25, really starts last week at the end of the story of Balak. And we're familiar that the king uh, hired Bil'am, the greatest prophet, and he, in ch- he charged him with the mission of cursing Bnei Israel, And in his four attempts, not only doesn't he curse, he blesses the people, he makes the most beautiful statements about Bnei Israel. Matovo halecha, we say under the chuppah, look how beautiful your tents are. And possibly to save his own life, at this point, Bil'am needs to offer the king something. He was paid a handsome sum, he did fail miserably in his mission, so it's possible, we believe, that he gave him a secret. And the secret is, and we all know it, of course, but that Bnei Israel at the moment have a protexia. They have this iron dome. They have this uh, uh, bubble that's completely surrounding them and protecting them. But I'm going to give you the pin. I'm going to give you what's the key to bursting that bubble. I'm going to give you, says Bil'am to Balak, I'm going to tell you the secret to their demise. And that is, the first three commandments, God introduced himself to his people and told them, I am your God, your only God. You cannot have other gods, no idols and no foreign deities. But, if you were able to entice them to worship a foreign god, that would kindle the wrath of Hashem. And in that case, he would remove the protection that they have upon them at the moment. And so when we see verse 1 in chapter 25, Ayeshev Yisrael Beshitim, the commentaries say it's a play on words for shtut, for stupidity, they, they were sitting in a place where they weren't thinking sharply. And so the women followed after Benot Moav. The word Liznot has a harlotry uh, um, flavor to it. What were these women doing? It's going to tell us exactly how we fell. Vatikrena, they called out. In English, we might say they were wooing to the Am. A minute ago, we were Yisrael. Of course, now we're an Am because once we listen to those calls and we listen to that, uh, um, we're, we're attracted to these things, we automatically fall from being Yisrael to an Am. Vatikrena la'am. They're called to come and worship their gods and to eat with them and to bow to them. And which god specifically are they bowing to? It says in verse 3, Baal Peor. Baal Peor, we all know already, just his name, Baal. Baal in Hebrew might mean a husband or a master, or an owner, we know from the days of Shoftim, the Baal and the Asherah, those two gods were a male and female counterpart. And the way that these gods were, um, were 
you know, the, the way they worshipped them was a very, very, we're going to keep the class G-rated, but you can just imagine um, they had this notion that the earth, the Asherah, the tree, was the woman, like Mother Nature. The, they regarded, again, they lived in a time of where agriculture was the biggest form of income. And so people depend on their livelihood is, is, the, is the agriculture, farming, and all of that. And so when they would pray to the gods, they would pray that they would have a fruitful year or that type of terminology, that the crops would do well. And so part of that, the idolic practices involved this belief that Baal, this Baal Peor, that this idol was the husband and he impregnated the land and therefore the land would become fruitful, the Asherah. And so the practices surrounding this idea and this notion would be to spill seed on the ground and thereby tell their God to do the same, to also allow for the land to uh, proliferate. I, I think most of you get the gist, but the point that I want to make here is that Vayichar Af Hashem Israel. The minute B'nai Yisrael, and that's why when we see in this week's parasha, of course God doesn't get jealous, he's above all of that. The language, the anthropomorphic language that's going to be used is so that we could understand and we could imagine how would we feel if we were in a marriage and the wife because B'nai Israel here is like the wife, and the wife commits adultery. And so here we entered into a marriage contract with God. Har Sinai, the first three items on the contract is, Anochi Hashem, I am your God. Lo you can't have any other gods other than me. Um, you, the whole idea of our breaching the contract is what happens at the end of last week. And they were pretty smart the Moabites, because they understood that if we break the rules of the contract, then our God is no longer going to be with us. Part of our mourning and our fasting today is the recognition that when tragedies befall the Jewish people, there is an underlying understanding that Hashem has the ability to prevent those things, the whole book, the whole the whole parashat balak was, there was supposed to be a danger, but Hashem prevented it. We weren't even aware of it. So here, as we move in from parashat balak into parashat pinchas, and we're fasting, we have to ask ourselves, what can we do to restore the Iron Dome? to restore that aura of protection so that the things in the natural world that might possibly harm us won't harm us. And, and Pinchas comes here, he saves the day, he, he does everything in last week's parasha, so I'll just uh, um, familiarize with you with it. The problem was that this worship wasn't just rampant, it was taking place at the top when the prince of the tribe of Shimon is going to engage in this behavior, it's going to give license to everybody else to follow suit. And so what happens is um, they don't name him here. They say, A man from Bet Yisrael. What does he do? He comes... And he brings a Midianite woman to the eyes of Moshe in plain sight, in broad daylight, in your face, so to speak. He's not doing this in a covert way. He is showcasing his behavior. And what happens? In the eyes of all the people, and they're crying. Who's crying? whether it's Moshe, Aharon, the people, all of the above, 
It was a time of, um, uh, it was a, a devastating time, but the Torah takes the point to say they stood and they cried. And crying, where, where is crying going to get them? And nowhere. But somebody decides that he's going to act on this. And what, what does he do? Vayar Pinchas ben Elazar, our hero of today's perasha, Pinchas ben Elazar, ben Aharon HaKohen, when somebody's accolades, when somebody's titles extend like this, Pinchas ben Elazar, ben Aharon HaKohen, Vayakom, we all love that word, he rises above, Mitoch he takes a romach beyado, he takes a spear in his hand, the teachers love to teach the uh, young grade school kids, and they call this the big shish kebab. He takes a spear, and what does he do it? Vayavo achar ish Yisrael. He comes after the man from Yisrael to the kuba. The kuba is a enclosed space, so it could have been they were in a tent or somewhere close, or it could be the kuba, which is a person's innards, like a woman's womb could be like a kuba. It's like a an enclosed uh, space. So what does he do? There is a plague that is running rampant because the people are worshipping this Baal Peor. Not only are they worshipping Baal Peor, but now they, he's going to step it up a notch. This man, um, Zimri, who we're going to meet next week, Ben Salu, he's going to ramp it up and he's going to do now these illicit actions uh, with this woman. And he's going to do it in plain sight. The people are crying. There is a, it could be also that they were crying because there is a plague that is running rampant and people are dying. And this one act of Pinchas where he takes his spear and he spears the two of them, him in his center and her in her center. And that's why they give you that image. There's, there are images written, the Mefashim have where Pinchas didn't only um, put them on both on his spear, but he was given the strength that he was able to lift up his spear and show their bodies to the people. It's possible that 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 was what got the magifa to stop. And um, from this magifa, twenty four thousand people died. Now we get to this week's perasha. That was episode one. Let's say. Now we resume the story in Parashat Pinchas, and God is saying, because Pinchas acted, I want you to tell him in the next verse, which is verse 12, Lachen emor, I want you to say, Hineni notenlo, I am gifting him, Briti shalom, my covenant of peace. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. We could only imagine the gory sight of Pinchas's action. There's a lot of debate. Words like zealotry are used with, with Pinchas. I think God comes here to respond because if we ended up last week with Pinchas's action and a court was to convene I'm not sure what would be decided. And the reason for that is you can't just kill people. There is a process. There is, you need to have a deem, which you had. The person needs to be warned. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. There were other people who could have acted ahead of him. And he went and just did what he did. And so if we didn't turn the page to this week's perashah, the cliffhanger would be, what's going to become of Pinchas? Is he a hero? Is he a vigilante? How are we going to judge him? And Baruch Hashem, God comes in here and says, I'm going to give him Biriti Shalom. Not just going to make a covenant with him. I'm going to give him a covenant of peace. And what does that really mean? Most people say that because 
well, I, besides the Bereti Shalom, let me give you one more piece and we'll go back to that. It says, Vehaitalo, and he and his children after him will have Berit Kehunat Olam. They will be Kohanim forever. Tachat Asher Kinale Lohav. And because he felt God's uh, pain and because in doing so, Vehaper Abene Israel, he was able to bring Kapara to the people. I'd like to suggest that the two schools of thought are right. There's a school of thought that says, of course, anashim, in a place where nobody's doing the right thing, you stand up and you do the right thing. And so, of course, he should have done what he did. And there are other people who say it's very hard for us to sanction what Pinhas did because we don't want to create a society of people who just act without having a court and convening and uh, deliberating and all of that. And so I believe, I suggest that this Bediti Shalom isn't a reward. It, it, of course, it's a reward, but it's a response. It's saying, Pinchas, I love what you did, but in order for you to continue to operate as one of my key players, I need for you to also have Bediti Shalom. I need you to have a Shelemut. I need you to have a completion. I need you to be able to develop another side of yourself. I need you to develop a side that's not as impulsive and reactive. I need you to develop this thing called shalom. And it's very hard for you to get to that place from where you are. So I'm going to gift that to you. I'm going to incorporate this attribute of shalom to your being so that you could continue because I know your motives were pure. And that's another the Gemara goes on for pages about whether or not this was appropriate. And at the end of the day, we believe that Eliyahu Hanavi is the uh, incarnate of Pinchas, because they say that Pinchas never died, nor did Eliyahu Hanavi went up in a chariot. And the idea is that Pinchas had pure motives. There was nothing in his action that he stood personally to gain from. What he did, he did for the betterment of the people, for the survival, for the sanctity of the, uh, of the camp. And so when we're introduced to Pinchas in this way, we start to see there's one form or style of leadership, the Pinchas style of leadership is going to be one model and we're going to talk about that more and the reason I say that is because towards the end of our perashah, God is going to ask Moshe to appoint and anoint another leader. So I want you to have that in your mind. We're going to have our perashah is going to be beautifully bookended. It's going to start out with these women that enticed the men and brought them to sin and brought them down and led them astray. And then this week we're going to meet women, the daughters of Selofchad, who are going to actually uh, uh, elevate the camp and bring even new halachot in their merit. So we're, we're going to see a lot of these two sides um, taking place. Right after this story of the Pinchas being granted a Brit, Brit Keunat Olam and Briti Shalom, um, of course they name the perpetrators, uh, and the Midianim are cursed. Seror et Midianim vehikitem otam. These, this is a, a cursed nation to us. Um, and now, after this whole story, you'll see something which, interest, which is interesting if you go to shul and you see, want to look at the Sefer. Um, chapter 26, Kaf Vav, has something very interesting. Pasuk Aleph says, After the plague, and then you have a completely white line. It's called the Pesika Be'emsa Pasuk. 
it starts by saying, and it was after the Magifah, and then there's a long break of just white parchment, and then that same pasuk continues and says, Hashem told Moshe and Elazar Kohen, count, take a census of the people, or of course, uplift the people. Right now they're in the dumps. Right now we've lost uh, 24,000 of them. And so um, it's time for a, to do a recount and a reset. And some people say that that white space is what is needed to break away from what was and move forward towards a new, a new place. I'm not just saying that in, sense of, in the sense of moving away from Midian and Moab and moving away from the idolatry, but this Pesika Be'emtza Pasuk also is going to tell us everything that you see, it's like a, starting a new paragraph, except it's doing it in the middle of a Pasuk, everything that you're going to see moving forward I'm, I'm leaving space, I'm creating space for the new reality. And the reason we say, see and say this, besides that there's a census, why would there be a census at this point? Somebody had asked in last week's um, class, I think it was Rena, where are we in our timeline? So by the time last week passed and Aharon died and Miriam died, and now we're going to see there's going to be a census where Selofchad is going to die. We're going to talk about him as well. We're getting the sense that the people that needed to be buried in the desert are coming to an end, Moshe being one of the last of them. And this Pesika, this space is saying, we're moving towards the next phase in our Jewish history and into entering the land. And the laws that are going to follow are going to all be oriented to that. Meaning, when we count B'nai Yisrael and we do a census, in verse 33, it says, And ben as they're naming all of the people, they get up to the tribe of Menashe and they say, this man, Selofchad, didn't have any sons, but he did have daughters, and they named the daughters, Machla, Noah, Chogla, Milka, Tirza, and then they say this was the family of Menashe. So they already introduced us to this concept of, in the census, there was a man, he didn't have sons, he only had daughters, and the next big story that's going to take place in Perek Kafzayin, chapter 27, is Vatikravna. Remember, we started our story, Vatikrana. What were the women doing? They were wooing, they were calling, they were enticing, they were drawing the men to sin. Now it's Vatikravna, Benotzelovchad. And I want to take a minute and talk about these Women, I think it's very, very important that we understand the Torah is giving us a double message here. So at first it says, these women, the daughters of Selofchad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, the family of Menashe, the son of Yosef, and these are their names, and again names all of these daughters. So I'm going to stop for a minute and say, if this is the new generation, if Selofchad died and these daughters are alive, if we had our pesika, our space in the middle of the pasuk, we're starting to get the sense that these are the women who are going to be the pioneeresses of Eretz Yisrael. And I want you to be introduced to them, says the Torah, in a very beautiful way. If you notice and we count the generations that are depicted for the daughters of Selofchad, let's count backwards. They mention here Yosef. His son was Menashe, that's two. His son was Mechir, whose son was Gilad, whose son was Hefer, that's up to five already, whose son was Selofchad, is six. 
Well, guess what? These daughters are the seventh generation from Yosef. We've said this before when we spoke about Cain, Shivatayim Yukam, when Cain cried that his punishment was too great for him to bear. And he tells God, if anybody sees me, they will kill me. And God tells him these words, Shivatayim Yukam, and we have no idea what they mean, Shivatayim and seven and seventy, seven, seven, something to do with seven, you come, you will be, or something will be uplifted, or something will be kiyim, will be established. But we still don't understand it until we count the seven generations from Cain, and we see that his seventh generation are Yaval and Yuval, the Yovel, which Yovel we know brings freedom and brings liberty, and things go back to their pristine original state of land was sold, it goes back to its owner. If there was a slave that wanted to stay with his master, he goes free on the 50th year. And so here the daughters of Silvovchad are a symbol of not only liberation, but of yukam, a symbol of something being completed or something being achieved or attained of a perfection coming full circle. What do these women, and they have to be important, not only are their names mentioned twice in this perasha, which is, by the way, not so usual for a group of sisters to be named that way, but to be named as the seventh generation of Yosef. And so when we meet these women, it's forcing us to go back to Yosef and saying, they are still connected to Yosef. They are here to fulfill a mission that Yosef started. And it causes us to stop and think, what was Yosef's greatest aspiration till his dying day? On his deathbed, he asks for two things. He says, one, please. He's searching and yearning for brotherhood. He's crying because his brothers still don't get it, still don't accept him, still don't trust him, and still don't believe him. So this sense of brotherhood that's so central to Yosef's uh, completion isn't attained in his lifetime. So we're going to call that brotherhood. And what else does he ask for? He says, Pakod Yivkod Elohim etchem, Hashem, Elohim is going to take you out of these, this place. And when he does, Please take my bones, take my essence. You know what these women are doing? They're bringing the essence of Yosef back from Mitzrayim into Eretz Israel. How are they going to bring his essence? The words that they're going to use are going to be so uh, clearly the word ach, achi, achenu, the word brother is going to be used so many times in their language. They're going to say, well, they start out by saying, avinu met bamidbar, our father died in the desert. Velo haya lo, adim al Hashem, korach. He wasn't a troublemaker or somebody that rallied people the Mefarshim actually say he was the Mekoshesh, it seemed, the tree chopper. Um, he didn't cause anybody else to fall with his actions. If anything, Rabbi Farhi taught a class this week that said that he did it to show the people, he was willing to be a sacrifice to show the people how important Shabbat is, that if you're chopping down trees, then the punishment is death. And he was willing to give up his own life to prove that point because the people weren't understanding it. Regardless, he was not a person who was he wasn't bringing other people down. And then they use these words and they say, Why should our father's name be erased? From his family. Ki en lo ben, just because he doesn't have a son. Tena lanu achoza, betoch ache avinu. 
everything they're going to say is they want to be part of their father's brothers. It's back to Yosef. Why should Yosef, his whole life, he lived a major part of his life separated and away from his brothers, even when they were in Egypt, they still didn't have that sense of brotherhoods. And they say this again, Achuzat Nachala Betoch Ache Avihem is how God answers them. What these women are saying, and it plays so beautifully with the uh, 17th of Tammuz fast, which is there are two things that really these daughters of Selofchad are asking for, and they're requesting it because in order to come back to the land, in order for all of us to come back to the land, we need to have this sense of brotherhood no man, lama yigara, not one man could be left out. I say this a lot. We are like a sefer Torah. This, was, I said that the fourth tragedy was that the Roman leader burned the sefer Torah. How do you burn? If the Jewish people are the embodiment of a sefer Torah, then we're impenetrable. But if one letter is missing, if one letter is broken, what happens to that Sefer Torah? It's pasul. It doesn't have the Iron Dome. It doesn't have the status. We, as human Sefer Torahs, have to realize that brotherhood means bringing every single person and making room for every single person in our community, in our nation. We have to stand for that. The daughters of Selofchad are telling Moshe, I'm going to rephrase it now, you need us to inherit land and you need us to be accounted for. Because if one of us is not accounted for, then all of you can't be a Sefer Torah. We're here, and they put this story here together with Pinchas because they were not chutzpah ladies. They were women who understood. As a matter of fact, what God answers is he says, you could cry how beautiful God answers Moshe. Moshe doesn't know how to react, so he goes to Hashem, and Hashem says, Ken benot dobrot. Ken. You know what Ken is? The word Ken was created when the world was created. Where God said, Yehi od, vayehi ken. You know what Ken is? It's a completion of something that needs to exist. It is, it is bringing that thing into existence like light. Every day that God said something, ken, it came into existence. God is already saying when we see this word, ken dobrot, you know what these women are doing? They're bringing something into existence that if they don't dobrot, if they don't speak, this thing might otherwise not exist. And what is it that they're bringing into existence? They're bringing a sense of fullness and completeness and uh, intactness to the people. You cannot, an an entire halacha series uh, comes to be from what they ask. Because God comes and says, first, not only give them what they ask for, he says, Naton titen, in double language, in the future, not just now, but in the future. Don't just give them, um, what, what did they, when they, they just asked for an achuzah. Don't just give them an achuzah. Give them achuzat nachala. Don't just give them a holding that's good for this generation. It's a nachala, like a nachal, like a brook. It's something that's going to, it's coming to them. We, we, we have that phrase, something that flows, that comes towards you. Their achuzah is flowing towards, towards them. It, it belongs to them. Amongst the brothers, acheh avihen. And make sure that you allow their father's portion to come like a nachala, nachalat avihem to them. And not only that, at the end, they're going to use the word yirusha, you'll see it in verse 11. Achuzah, 
Nachala, Yerusha, all these forms of inheritance is what's being bestowed to the daughters of Selofchad. And not just because they're women, but also because they are able to continue the Yosef uh, mission. And Yosef had two missions. One was to have a completion of brotherhood, which they clearly hit upon. And the other one is to become a part of the land. Take me into the land. And by asking specifically for land and being from the tribe of Menashe, from the descendants of Yosef, the children, the child of Menashe who wasn't born in the land, you may say, hey, you never even left Eretz Yisrael to come back to Eretz Yisrael. You were born in Egypt. Instead, the Torah is clear to say these benot selofchad are women that should be uh, celebrated and lauded. And just to take one more second so we could see their approach, what they do in verse 2 is vata'amodna. They stand not like Korach and Adato who start grassroots movements and they start from the people and they move their way up till they get to Moshe and Aharon. They start at the top, and they take their case straight to the highest court. They come straight to Moshe, and to Elazar HaKohen, and to the Nesi'im, and to Kol Ha'edah. And where do they come? Petach Ohel Mo'ed. They want God to also be part of this process. And so their methodology is one for us to uh, realize and follow if we want to turn the 17th of Tammuz and later on Tisha B'Av to a day of celebration instead of a day of mourning, we have to start with things like a brotherhood and an appreciation and a love for the land. Now, what, oh, I'm going to just say one other thing that I think is very, very beautiful. There are commentaries who say that these daughters of Selofchad you know Yirmiyahu was the um, prophet of, uh, of doom. They called him the weeping prophet. All he did was say, destruction is upon you. If you don't change your ways, your ways are so horrible. God's going to destroy you. But one beautiful, one of the beautiful things that he says is, Od Yishama, I'm not going to sing because it's the 17th of Tammuz. If it was yesterday, he had a shot. But he says, Od Yishama Behare Yehuda Ubechutsot Yerushalayim Kol Sason Bekol Simcha. Right? We know the, 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 we sing it to the Chatanim after they, Mechupatam, after they come out of their Chupa. We sing, There will still be heard in the hills of Yehuda, Od Yishama, and outside Ubechutsot Yerushalayim. There's still going to be happiness. There still is going to be joyfulness. But it says, These women, the daughters of Selofchad, have awakened. There was always the voice of the males. But the daughters of Selofchad, they have awakened. That the women now also have an ability to express themselves and they will express themselves and they will express themselves with simcha, with sason, they will express themselves in Yerushalayim because these women started that uh, initial expression. One of the beautiful things that we see that takes place after this Benot Selofchad story is in verse 12, we're in the same uh, chapter 27, Hashem tells Moshe, Ale el had ha'evarim. I told you we're coming in for a landing. I told you that we're nearing the end of the 40th year. All of our eyes are pointed to the land. If anything, these women are having this conversation now because entrance into the land is imminent and they want to secure their place uh, before the entrance into Eretz Yisrael. So much so that in verse 12, Hashem tells Moshe, Ale el har ha'evarim. Go to the top of har ha'evarim 
and see the land that I'm going to give to Bnei Israel. And you will see it. And then, that's it. His brother passed, his sister passed, and now it's his time. You're going to be gathered unto your people. Same like Aaron, your brother. And he adds here the, the story of the... Um, of the Miritem, Pi Bemidbarsin, where he, they could have spoken to the rock and instead they hit the rock. But I brought you here because now you're going to see one very unusual verse that we hardly ever see, and that is verse 15. Vayidaber Moshe el Hashem lemor. Usually, if you're familiar with this type of pasuk, it's usually vaidaber Hashem el Moshe lemor. Now it says vaidaber Moshe el Hashem lemor. And I want you to see what he says. So first of all, Moshe is now speaking to God in the way that God, in the format that God had spoken to him. It seems to many that it's even as if Moshe is now sort of making a command or even making a demand, and he's saying, Yivkod, I mean the terminology, the Lashon Sivui is pretty strong, Yivkod Hashem Elohe Haruchot. You know me and the word Pakad, that God shouldn't just remember and shouldn't just appoint, but he should bring into this world this idea of pakod, this idea of even in the natural world, unnatural, supernatural, miraculous things should be able to happen. Yivkod Hashem Eloheruchot, Hashem, I am leaving this world, but you need to continue, like Yosef had said, pakod Elohim etchem. Hashem is being asked here to continue all Moshe knows in his 120 years on this planet, if he kept a diary of all of the nisim v'niflaot, the miracles and the wonders that Hashem had performed, it would be volumes of what he, his eyes alone, have seen. And Moshe is asking Hashem at this point and saying, please, that needs to continue. And he says... Uh, I want you to please now, on another level, he's saying, you've called, I want you to appoint for these people, Ish al Haida, a man, he's looking for a succession. He's looking for somebody who's going to take his place. Somebody, Asher Yetzelifnehem, that will go out before them. Asher Yavo, and that will also return. So, what he's asking for, and we know that uh, in many other societies, the king, like with Paro, right? Sus Paro Vedichbo, they all drowned in the ocean, but the story has it that Paro stayed back and watched all this happen. Foreign kings very often sent their soldiers ahead of them and they protected themselves in the, in the background. Moshe is saying the way of a Jewish leader is to be front and center, is to lead, so to speak, from the front. So he says, Asher lifnehem, he'll go out in front of them. Ve'asher lifnehem, and he'll come before them. Ve'asher yotzim ve'asher bi'em, when they go and they come. Don't let them be like sheep that don't have a shepherd. And then God says this beautiful thing, and he says, take Yehoshua binun, Take him because he's a man that has ruach, that has spirit inside of him. And place your hand upon him. I want you to notice that it says hand in the singular. And stand him before Elazar HaKohen and in front of all of the people. And you're going to publicly... You're going to transfer of your greatness onto him in front of all the people. And so Moshe does everything Hashem says. 
He takes Yoshua, he stands him up in front of Elazar Kohen, in front of all the people. Vayismoch. This is where Semicha comes from. When you put your hand on somebody, you're transferring your energy to that person. Vayismoch et yadavalav. God just told him to put his hand on Yehoshua. But instead, Moshe puts both of his hands on him and he commands him, and he commands him to follow and take charge of his position, just as Hashem had spoken back to the singular Yad. Something here is taking place. Maybe we could unpack it a little bit. God tells Moshe to put one hand on Yeshua. So big deal, Moshe puts two hands. What's the big story? It's a huge story. And one of the reasons for the story is because as we're reading this, we're saying, what? Why are you picking Yoshua? Why not Pinchas? It's his parashah. The parashah is called Parashat Pinchas. Pinchas is the hero du jour. He's the guy who stopped the plague. He got Biriti Shalom. He gets Birkat Kehunat Olam. If there is an election for a leader, I think that the ratings... And the approval ratings for Pinchas at this point are going to be through the sky. And Yehoshua, who's Yehoshua? What does Yehoshua even symbolize for us? I'm going to use a, a, a word, but I, and of course I'm going to fix it in a minute, so don't tune out this second. But Yehoshua's a little bit of a been there, done that, old guard, boring, nothing exciting. He's slow paced. He's always waiting around, whether in the tent he's waiting for Moshe, waiting for Moshe on the mountain. He's, he's very diligent and he's very uh, persevering and all of that. He's very determined. You know, the tortoise and the hare, he would be the tortoise in this analogy. Nothing about him is fast. Nothing about him is uh, uh, exciting. Well, let's talk about one second why we would think Pinchas would be the candidate or the obvious candidate. Because Pinchas is everything that we are attracted to in today's society. He's quick-paced. He is not just modern. He's active. He's entertaining, he's unusual, he does things that are fascinating. You know, one of the biggest challenges teachers are having in the classroom is that they're competing with the electronic devices that the kids are spending time with. So the kids are seeing all these bells and whistles and noises and the screen is changing every 10 seconds and it's fascinating and exciting and entertaining and and all that stuff and then you get a one-dimensional teacher in a class and how could she possibly compete with all of those uh, fireworks Yehoshua is that person that is slow and steady what you see is what you get he's dependable as the day is long but unfortunately, we really, we see it today, especially with the kids. What would the kids rather have? A teacher standing in the front of the classroom, the best teacher. I'll give you Mary Poppins. Take whoever you want. The best that you can't even question how great they are. Or a device, an iPhone, iPad, whatever it is, and see something at they're glued. There's not a teacher in the world that could get the kids to be as glued to them as they are to these devices. And Pinchas is that person. He's that exciting. He's, you know, we, 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 the news looks for the hurricane, the hailstorm. That's going to get viewers. There's something that's out of the ordinary. That's what's going to attract people's attention. And yet God tells Moshe here, no, I want you to take Yehoshua because Yehoshua is the one that's going to be able, it's the slow and steady, it's the constant, it's the dependability of Yehoshua, it's the familiar, it's the ordinary that's going to end up, that's going to allow you to come back to the land. 
Why am I saying those words? I'm using words like familiar and ordinary. I might even go as crazy as to say boring, humdrum, been there, done that. You know what I'm really describing? I'm describing the Qurban Tamid that we stated in the beginning of the class that was one of the things that ceased on the 17th of Tammuz. Why is this listed amongst the tragedies like the golden calf? Golden calf, Korban Tamid. Come on, Korban Tamid is not such a... Yeah, but you know what the Torah is telling us? And our sages are telling us? When, the, when you lose the Korban Tamid, when you use that sense of routine, when you, you, when you lose the things that you do daily, that has a greater, you, you have a greater danger of losing everything. You need the Korban Tamid. You need the Yehoshua. You need the stable, steady, dependable in your life. So what is Moshe doing? He's such a genius. God told him to just put his hand on Yehoshua. But instead he puts his two hands on Yehoshua. Because the right hand, it's called the Yad Gedolah. The Yad Gedolah really might represent, maybe that represented Yehoshua. Because it's his Yad Gedolah. It's Kabbalistically, they'll say the right hand is loving kindness and all of that kind of stuff. So if he's going to put his right hand on Yehoshua, he can't, he knows, he understands Moshe, that just the ordinary is not going to get you to cross the finish line. He also gives him the left hand, which is considered Yad Givura, the hand of strength. So you have, it's like, uh, you have have the Gishme Givura, you, the rain coming down is like chesed, is kindness that God is giving us rain, but then you need strength for it to pound and penetrate into the earth. What Moshe is saying by putting his two hands on Yehoshua, he's saying, yes, we need you to be dependable, but we also need you to be strong. And by putting him in this perashah, what's the most exciting thing for me when I see something like this, what takes place? Right after it says, Right after it talks the third time, talking about the hand of Moshe, he's supposed to put one hand, he puts two hands, and then the Torah says, Oh, Moshe did everything that was given to him in his hand. The one hand of Moshe became the two forces. But that's not the exciting part. The exciting part is, and I love this, is the next verse. What does God say? Make sure that you bring Ola Tamid. It talks about the Korban Tamid. It's not just me telling you that the Tamid Korban stopped on the 17th of Tammuz, and that's what we're mourning, because if we don't have routine, then we stand in danger of losing everything. What we're really saying is that the Perashah is telling it to us as well, with choosing Yehuda as a successor. But Yehuda is not just going to be the successor alone because you'll notice when you're going to bring Yehoshua, I'm sorry, I don't know if I said Yehuda, but if you bring Yehoshua to be the leader, you're going to bring him Lifne Elazar HaKohen. You're going to bring him in front of the priest, in front of the Kohen, in front of the Pinchases of the world. So you need both. And that's why it's Beyad Moshe. Moshe understood that a great leader, and for the Jewish people today, that we don't have a unified leader, so we each have to be a leader within ourselves, that in order to be a leader, we have to have part Yehoshua, we have to do, and what do they call, what are the uh, Tamid, what are, how do they describe, tam, what do we have Tamid today in our life, a constant? We have daily Torah study, that's a tamid, that's constant. We have prayer, that's a constant. And we have Shabbat, that is a constant. That takes place every single week. So some of the commentaries say, daily study, prayer, and keeping the Shabbat is going to bring back the korban tamid. But for our 
understanding of the Korban Tamid specifically today. I want to read. I want to read to you, and hopefully we'll start our closing with this. I want to read to you in the book of Shemot what the Korban Tamid um, represents. Let me see here. Korban Tamid. Um, in Shemot chapter 29, verse 42. Okay. In verse 42, do you know what it says about the Korban Tamid? It says, For all your generations, you need to have Olat Tamid. So we all have to incorporate a routine in our lives that is constant and it says if they do this I will make myself known will become Kadosh with my presence and I will sanctify them I will be their God I will reside amongst them. You know what God is telling us here? He's saying that if we want to recapture that iron dome, the one that Balak couldn't penetrate and Bil'am couldn't break for the life of them, if we want to recreate this bubble, this aura of protection, yes, we do need to build the physical protections. But we also have to have, we didn't recognize that this ola or this tamid or this idea of constantness has to permeate our being. There is uh, um, uh, one last, I'll end this because we spoke about Yirmiyahu. So the, the beginning of his career, Yirmiyahu is asked to see two things. The first one, God tells him, what do you see? And Yirmiyahu says, I see a makel shaked. I see an almond branch. And the second thing he sees, it, God asks him, what do you see? He says, I see a boiling pot. And the question that we have is a sir nafuach, a, a, a pot that's boiling over. Maybe we could understand Yirmiyahu, the one who's warning us of destruction. He's also giving us the antidote and the solution. And he's saying, or God is telling him, I want you to see both the beautiful almond branch and the boiling over of the water. To me, reading it in this week's Perashah, maybe I would say, that the makel shaker, the almond branch, could be Yehoshua. It's dependable. And the boiling water that's constantly moving and exploding and bursting out, maybe that's like a Pinchas type of personality. And God is showing him both of those because we ourselves need to develop both of those sides of ourselves, our right hand and our left hand our loving kindness, and our strength. The idea that we need these two leaders to bring us into the land, and the idea that God is telling us clearly, yes, I mean, we just finished the 4th of July, so that's why the fireworks is a word that I'm using a lot of, but God is telling us something else. Yes, Pinchas brought the fireworks to the, to the table. And he brought all of that excitement and all of that uh, entertaining fascination of the unusual. But you know what else? You know, we're going to read a lot of this in the upcoming weeks. God says, if you want to find me, you need to find your own kol de mamadaka. You need to find your own small inner voice. You need to connect to that voice. And why is it that kol de mama? Why is it that small, quiet voice? Because that's the voice that is a constant. That voice is going 24-7 within you. It's speaking when you're sleeping. 
בשבתך, בביתך, בלכתך, בדרך, בשוכבך, בקומך. There's a voice that's inside of you, whether you're asleep, whether you're awake, whether you're on the move, or whether you're sedentary. And that constant voice, that voice that is always within you, and why do, why do we say that? What do we mean about that voice that's always within you? What's always within you, says God? What is the tamid? What is the kidashti betocham? God is saying, it's my voice. It's me that's inside of you. So if you want to get to a place where you're going to cross the Yarden, or when we nationally will be all gathered together in our nation, in peace with all of the nations there and with each other, if we want to do all that, then we need to do the things that are constant, the, whether it's the study, the prayer, the Shabbat, or even the small things. You don't have to only do the crazy big gestures. You know, the Torah starts out telling us about being a hero and how to be a hero. And we think that you have to be a hero by acting like Pinchas and doing these big, grand gestures. But you know what? If you're a hero every single day, in every little way, that is bringing back the Korban Tamid. A hero, being a hero, according to Hashem, doesn't mean the grand gestures only. It means any little type of way that you can make somebody's day, you do that. Because if you're constantly doing that, then your constant voice is going to be encouraging you to continue that. And it's all of these things put together that God willing will allow us to see. Shekedim, Hashkedia, Porachat, we'll be able to see almonds growing in Eretz Israel, But more importantly, we'll be able to enjoy them all together in each other's company, in peace, in good health, and tranquility. Amen. Amen. Amen.